the clock was ticking. Nell looked at it and realized that it was 2.30, only 45 minutes before the children would be home, and she hadn't even felt anything right or sensible, and now there was no time or wouldn't be until nighttime when they were asleep and she could get into bed and maybe she could do it then. Think. But who could think in that bed where they had been and where they also had been and where only she was now? She looked around for a place to be, a small place. The closet? No, too dark. The bathroom. It was both small and bright, and she wanted to be in a very small, very bright place, small enough to contain her grief, bright enough to throw into relief the dark things that cluttered her. Once inside, she sank to the tile floor next to the toilet. On her knees, her hand on the cold rim of the bathtub, she waited for something to happen inside. There was a stirring, a movement of mud and dead leaves. She thought of the women at Chicken Little's funeral, the women who shrieked over the beer and at the lip of the open grave. What she had regarded since as unbecoming behavior seemed fitting to her now. They were screaming at the neck of God, his giant nape, the vast back of the head that he had turned on them in death. But it seemed to her now that it was not a fist-shaking grief they were keening, but rather a simple obligation to say something, do something, feel something about the dead. They could not let that heart-smashing event pass unrecorded, unidentified. It was poisonous, unnatural, to let the dead go with a mere whimpering, a slight murmur, a rose bouquet of good taste. Good taste was out of place in the company of death. Death itself was the essence of bad taste. And there must be much rage and saliva in its presence. The body must move and throw itself about. The eyes must roll. The hands should have no peace. And the throat should release all the yearning, despair, and outrage that accompany the stupidity of loss. The real hell of hell is that it is forever. Sula said that. She said doing anything forever and ever was hell. Nell didn't understand it then, but now in the bathroom, trying to feel, she thought, if I could be sure that I could stay here in this small white room with the dirty tile and water gurgling in the pipes and my head on the cool rim of this bathtub and never have to go out the door, I would be happy if I could be certain that I never had to get up and flush the toilet, go in the kitchen, watch my children grow up and die, see my food chewed on my plate. Sula was wrong. Helling things lasting forever. Hell is change. Not only did men leave, and children grow up and die, but even the misery didn't last. 
One day she wouldn't even have that. This very grief that had twisted her into a curve on the floor and flayed her would be gone. She would lose that too. Why, even in hate, here I am, thinking of what Sula said. Hunched down in the small bright room, Nell waited, waited for the oldest cry, a scream not for others, not in sympathy for a burnt child or a dead father, but a deeply personal cry for one's own pain, a loud, strident, why me? She waited. The mud shifted, the leaves stirred, the smell of overripe green things enveloped her and announced the beginnings of her very own howl. But it did not come. The odor evaporated. The leaves were still. The mud settled. And finally there was nothing. Just a flake of something dry and nasty in her throat. She stood up, frightened. There was something just to the right of her, in the air, just out of view. She couldn't see it, but she knew exactly what it looked like. A gray ball hovering just there, just there, to the right, quiet, gray, dirty, a ball of muddy strings, but without weight, fluffy, but terrible in its malevolence. She knew she could not look, so she closed her eyes and crept past it out of the bathroom, shutting the door behind her. Sweating with fear, she stepped to the kitchen door and onto the back porch. The lilac bushes preened at the railing, but there were no lilacs yet. Wasn't it time? Surely it was time. She looked over the fence to Mrs. Rayford's yard. Hers were not in bloom either. Was it too late? She fastened on this question with enthusiasm, all the time aware of something she was not thinking. It was the only way she could get her mind off the flake in her throat. She spent a whole summer with the gray ball, the little ball of fur and string and hair always floating in the light near her, but which she did not see because she never looked. But that was the terrible part, the effort it took not to look. But it was there, anyhow, just to the right of her head, and maybe further down by her shoulder. So when the children went to a monster movie at the Elmira Theater and came home and said, Mama, can you sleep with us tonight? She said, All right, and got into bed with the two boys who loved it. But the girl did not. For a long time, she could not stop getting in the bed with her children and told herself each time that they might dream a dream about dragons and would need her to comfort them. It was so nice to think about their scary dreams and not about a ball of fur. She even hoped their dreams would rub off on her and give her the wonderful relief of a nightmare so she could stop going around scared to turn her head this way or that, lest she see it. That was the scary part, seeing it. It was not coming at her. 
It never did that or tried to pounce on her. It just floated there for the seeing if she wanted to. And oh my God, for the touching if she wanted to. But she didn't want to see it, ever. For if she saw it, who could tell but what she might actually touch it or want to? And then what would happen if she actually reached out her hand and touched it?